Thank you so much, Natalie. Well done. And good to see many of you are still awake. In our last episode, we left off last week with the baptism of Jesus. Jesus praying, heaven opening, the Holy Spirit descending, God the Father proclaiming, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And so it's precisely that aspect of Jesus' identity, the Son of God, that Luke draws our attention to today, both through that record of Jesus' genealogy and the narrative of his temptation. So we're going to let Luke lead us through this passage this morning. You'll see in your outline the uh, thoroughly imaginative signposts of the path that we will follow today. The past temptation, the first, second, and third temptation, and then the coming temptation. The past temptation. So if we rule out the option of just skipping this section of names altogether, and some of you may wonder why that wasn't an option, what do we do with this sprawling list of names at the end of chapter 3? Well, we could do worse than asking ourselves if, if Luke has indeed deliberately ordered and structured his account what does he want us to notice here? And perhaps Luke intends us to observe this, that Jesus, in fact, does have an ancestry. He has a genealogy. Jesus has a, a family tree. And those, of course, are marks of humanity. Ancestry is, is a somewhat arcane, niche topic, though with online tools, DNA tests, shows like Who Do You Think You Are? Some people are into that. How much of your family tree are you familiar with? Invariably, what we find when we dig into our ancestry is that some names are all but lost to history, while a few others may remain notable and during the test of time, that's not unlike Jesus' family tree. What else does your family tree share in common with Jesus' family tree? Well, if you think about the names that you know on your family tree, if you look at the names in Jesus' family tree, you won't find on either of those trees an unblemished leaf, a perfect son. The first son on Jesus' family tree, Adam, remember he was created by God, given a pristine relationship with God in the Garden of Eden, and then was tempted in the garden by the serpent and chose to listen to the serpent's words instead of the words of God. That's important. Adam's failure had cosmic consequences because from that initial rebellion, then sin enters the world, doesn't it? We know some of their stories better than others, but every single son from Adam all the way to Joseph 
in Jesus' genealogy, they're stained by sin. And here's another way of thinking about that. Up to Jesus, all of humanity was guilty of giving in to temptation. And so in one way, this list of names that we've read through it reads like this roll call of failure. A litany of longing, if you will, for someone better. A stronger son, a sinless son. We began our reading in verse 23 with Luke's words. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. So it was thought. It's Luke's wink and a nod to his readers saying, Think again, Luke again, if you will. You may think that Jesus is Joseph's son, but the reality, it is so more profound than that. We've heard the voice of God saying about Jesus, you are my son. And now we see Luke's genealogy, which is tracing this line from Jesus to his true father. Jesus is capital T, the son of God. You may have also recognized David's name. Did you see that in Jesus' in Jesus' genealogy? Roughly a thousand years before Jesus was born, God promised King David this son whose kingdom would be established forever. Curiously, though, Luke traces Jesus' genealogy through David's son Nathan and not through David's son Solomon. In fact, he lists no kings of Israel or Judah after David. And I reckon, could that be Luke's way of highlighting Jesus as the ultimate, legitimate, permanent son of David, the promised king, the son of God? With that in mind, as we move now to the narrative of chapter 4, it's intriguing to consider that Jesus, the Son of God, could have celebrated his 30th birthday with a hike to the wilderness. Have a look there at chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Did Jesus just happen to find himself in the wilderness because he took a wrong turn at Nazareth? Of course not. Do you see, it's the Spirit who leads Jesus. So what's about to happen, this is not an accident. It's full of purpose. What we're going to read and go through, this is part of God's plan for his son. If you happen to count, did you see how many names there were listed in Jesus' genealogy? There's, there's 77. That's interesting. 77 different names in Jesus' genealogy. But the most notorious name in this passage, it doesn't occur now until verse 2. The devil. 
for 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted by the devil. What a way to begin your ministry, eh? In the Old Testament, the wilderness, that was the scene of the undoing of God's people. The Israelites endured 40 years of suffering in the wilderness as punishment for disobeying God and rejecting his word. Although they were the people of God, the Israelites, they lived in a way that rarely resembled their calling. And so the key question is then, will Jesus, under the most trying of conditions in the wilderness, will he live in a way that matches his identity as the Son of God? Is there any weakness, any waywardness, any inconsistency in Christ? We'll find out. And that brings us to the first temptation. At the end of verse 2, you'll notice he ate nothing. Jesus ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. Well, duh, we think. We don't need an investigative reporter to tell us that, do we? I suppose so, though, though in Luke's stating the obvious, let us remember that Jesus, the Son of God, he knows what it is to lack, to keenly feel that very basic yet very brutal pain of hunger. Jesus knows physical vulnerability. And hear this, Jesus' humanity is in no way diminished by his divinity. Why didn't Jesus die in the wilderness? What sustained him? God did. Jesus had an empty stomach, but he was full of the Spirit. Verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. How's your decision making when you're hungry? I walked into the back office here at church the other day, a few hours after brekkie. I'd had a good brekkie. Lunch is just on the horizon. But I was feeling just so famished. And we've got a snack cupboard back in the back staff room. Fantastic. To my delight, I opened that cupboard door and I found an unopened packet of mint slice. It was practically radiant. I cracked that packet open and I didn't eat all of them. <laughs> mint slice moments before lunch. That's how my decision-making fares on a fractionally empty stomach. 40 days without food, and all Jesus needs to do is speak stone to bread. What's the big deal? Think with me here. What is the temptation of this first episode? Satisfaction. Use your power to provide for yourself what you feel like you need the most. Satisfy yourself, the devil says. Live by what is tangible. 
sounds a lot like temptations I've given into. And maybe you have as well. But Jesus doesn't. Look how he responds in verse 4. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And the second half of that quote from the Old Testament reads, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It is written. Jesus goes back to Scripture. He will be sustained and satisfied by the words from the mouth of his Father. In effect, Jesus says, God's word, that's enough for me. I'll take him at his word. Yes, he's hungry. But Jesus humbly, totally relies on God. Yet the devil's not done. The second temptation. Read with me from verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Now I reckon here, here we see that that no one had more offered to them in a moment of time or, or a lifetime of time than Jesus did in this instant, eh? The devil, the prince of the world, offers the Son of God more than simply the the kingship of Israel. He lays before him the throne of the entire planet. And what is the temptation of this second episode? It is success. You can have it all, the devil says, and all it takes is a little Bending of the knee to me. That's it. We can narrow this down even further. The devil is specifically here tempting Jesus to take success without suffering. The prize without the pain. Authority and splendor that avoids the cross. Can you appreciate the appeal of that offer? Will Jesus be just like the people of Israel before him? Their history marred by prostitution to false gods, worshiping lesser gods in the interest of personal profit and pleasure? Is that what Jesus will be like? Verse 8 gives us the answer. Jesus answered, it is written... Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus is determined that his road to glory, it will not go through accepting the devil's offer, no. But rather through obeying the word of God. Later on in Luke, Jesus is with some people on the road to Emmaus. You may recall this episode. And after his resurrection, he's speaking about his death, and he tells them, did not the Messiah, that's Jesus, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter 
his glory. Suffering must come before splendor, grit before glory. Jesus made that choice for you. He made that choice for me. I'm so thankful, eh? The devil, of course, he's not thankful, he's disappointed. Yet to be dissuaded, though, he has another card to play. And we come to our third temptation in verse 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. We are moving towards a pinnacle here. Luke lists this temptation last in his account because this is the direction that his entire narrative, in fact, the life and ministry of Jesus, is heading. It is driving towards Jerusalem. We're going to keep seeing this. It is driving towards the cross. Hear what the devil says in verse 9. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. It's a demonic mimic of how Jesus has responded to him. Did you catch that? The devil drops that line, for it is written. And to an extent, he's right. That is written. But remember, the devil is a master of distorting and twisting God's words, isn't he? What is the temptation of this third episode? It is security. Don't you want some proof? Try God out, the devil says. Make sure that what he's told you isn't just a figment of your imagination. Are you really sure you are who God says you are? Is he really going to come through for you? Jesus answered, it is said, do not Put the Lord your God to the test. One of the prime examples of Israel's disobedience in the wilderness was testing God. Asking, is he with us or not? Where Israel failed as the people of God, Jesus remained faithful as the Son of God. And let's take a minute just to consider what Jesus did not say in response to the devil. If, if you look at Psalm 91, I'll, I'll put this up. At Psalm 91, here's the very next verse after the verses the devil quotes to Jesus. Look at this. You will tread on the lion and the cobra, Psalm 91 says. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Isn't this ironic? Jesus knows that. Why doesn't he drop the hammer, quote that verse, and say, devil serpent, you are toast. I'm going to trample you and grind you into the dust. Because Jesus knows that triumph only comes 
through submission to his Father. And once again, Jesus demonstrates his perfect obedience as the Son of God. And now we come to the coming temptation. The devil taps out. When the devil had finished all this tempting, verse 13 tells us, he left him. As Steve flagged for us, Jesus stands his ground and the devil departs. Jesus is left unsullied, unbowed, unstained by his encounter with the devil. An important battle has been won for us, though this isn't finished yet. Look again at the end of verse 13. He left him until an opportune time. Think about that phrase, an opportune time. Jesus had gone 40 days without food, emaciated, exhausted. He'd gone toe-to-toe with his adversary, the accuser, the devil. What could be a more stressful moment of weakness for Jesus? What could be a more opportune time for the devil than this moment? If we read ahead in Luke's gospel, we find Jesus in a garden, in anguish on the eve of his crucifixion, fervently praying about the events soon to unfold, and Jesus exhorts his disciples to do what I believe he himself has been doing. He says to them, Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. And then, in the midst of his crucifixion, Jesus is on the cross when some soldiers come up and mock him, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Did you hear the echo of the devil's words? If you are the Son of God, if you are the King of the Jews, can you imagine? Can you imagine the temptation that Jesus endured as he faced on the cross the wrath of God that he did not deserve? The devil tries to cause this rift in Jesus' relationship with his Father, but Jesus does not shy away, does he, from his Father's will. He shows himself to be the faithful, obedient Son of God. Friends, can you tune in here now, because I don't want you to miss this. Listen in here. Come in. Jesus' perfect rejection of the devil and his temptations, that is more than admirable. It's more than incredible. It is absolutely 100% necessary for us. This is why, without Jesus' complete refusal to give in to temptation, to cave, we would be without a Savior, without a substitute, without the Son of God doing for us in our place, what we could never hope to do ourselves. Have you thought about that? 
how Jesus' victory in the midst of temptation, that carries eternal ramifications for us. If all Jesus does is make us drop our jaws and say, whoa, that's awesome. That is inspiring. We've lost the plot. We've missed the point. Because it is the merit of the Son of God that is absolutely essential to save us, the people of God. So here's the line to latch on to. Here's what I'd love you to remember. There we go. Jesus is the Son of God who defied the devil by the Word of God. What does that mean for us? Two things. Rest. Rest in Jesus' victory. And learn from Jesus' strategy. For all the times we've given in to temptation, Jesus has taken the penalty for our sin. Though we're still in the presence of sin, aren't we? Charles Spurgeon said of the devil, he can make a temptation for you out of anything. And he's right. There is no emotional state, no life circumstance, nor mental or moral aptitude we can achieve that is safe from the allure of sin. Temptation occurs when we hear the, the palatable, the seemingly reasonable, sugar-coated words of the devil. Words that would draw us away from the words of God. And sin is when we lean into those words, when we welcome them and act on them. And we know what that's like, don't we? That is all too easy to fall into. And sometimes, perhaps it's even hard for us to want to say no to temptation. Isn't it wonderful then that Jesus does not stand above us. He stands with us and for us. Rest in Jesus' victory. Learn from Jesus' strategy. What was Jesus' strategy in the midst of temptation against the devil? It was to stand on God's word. Remember God's promises. Rely on God's strength. You know, our sharpest weapon against the word of the devil is the word of God, right? But a sword that is dull and rusty and, and hard to pull out of its scabbard, it's practically useless in a battle with temptation. Would you agree? The further you stray from Scripture, the more dust your Bible gathers, the more susceptible you are to the devil's schemes. So what sort of shape are you in when it comes to wielding the weapon of the word in your fight against sin? What sort of shape are you in? And I'll tell you, something we are so good at when we are being tempted 
We are so good at justifying to ourselves why giving in to temptation is legitimate, why it's okay. We're very clever. And our inner, selfish, self-righteous voice, that is incredibly powerful. And so the question is then, when we're in the midst of temptation, when we're in the thick of the fight, when we are on the cusp of falling into sin, Whose voice will we listen to? Ours or the voice of God? Will we take ourselves back again to the word of God made flesh, to Jesus? I'd like to close by asking us to to just briefly consider the nature of our Christian relationships in light of what we've heard today. A couple questions to ask as we close. Friends, how prepared are you to put your hand up in in the confidence of a Christian brother or sister and admit, hey, I'm struggling with temptation in this area. Yes, it's awkward. Yes, it's humbling. Yes, it may be God's way of protecting you from being strangled by sin. And then the flip side of that, how prepared are you to walk with a fellow Christian as they are in the messiness of fighting temptation? And yes, that can be messy. How prepared are you to give grace instead of condemnation? And how persuaded are you that pointing yourself and pointing others to Jesus in God's word, that is the best way to battle temptation? You know, if Jesus did not consider himself sufficient to resist the devil's temptations in and of himself to just say no, what makes us think that we can resist temptation simply on the strength of our own willpower. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God who defied the devil by the Word of God. And that is good news. So friends, rest in Jesus' victory. Learn from Jesus' strategy. Lord, please grant us your grace and help for this. Amen.